Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Dr. Williams is the author of the acclaimed book, Shattered by the Darkness, Putting the Pieces Back Together After Child Abuse. Dr. Williams is on the senior leadership team at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and Dr. Williams travels the United States speaking and training professionals, parents, and victims about the importance of dealing with abuse and personal trauma head-on and not being afraid to break the silence of your own personal pain. Feel free to call in to tonight's show at 888-627-6008 and speak with Dr. Williams and his guests live on air. And now, your host, Dr. Williams. Well, good evening. Happy Father's Day to all the daddies out there and the pops and and uh, the great men that have uh, kept our our families together and tried to raise the kids the best they could. And I'll just welcome you to the program this evening. Tonight's going to be just an awesome, really uh, an excellent uh, Father's Day program. I think this is going to be good. We have a, a wonderful author that I just finished his second book uh, this afternoon, and it's great. And it's just going to be an honor to have him on. Uh, but I always want to let you know that uh, you want to make sure you have a notepad handy, a uh, pen or a pencil, and be ready to write down some things that you may want to remember. But definitely you're going to want to write down these two books that this author has written and how to get a hold of them and possibly how to get uh, those books for yourself um, for your own enjoyment and reading. So it's going to be great. So just welcome to the program. Is this not just an awesome sunset right behind me on the most beautiful city in the world, Houston, Texas, and I'll cover that up right now. Just in a few minutes, we'll be sitting in the dark, so uh, I won't uh, have this behind me so bright. Welcome to the program. You know, as I look at uh, the past week that I've endured and gone through and experienced and going into um, the Father's Day weekend, I kind of have been focusing on some things that I would like to maybe give up in my life to have a better week. And I'm going to give you several of these, and we'll just see how far this takes us. But some things that I need to give up, um, and possibly you may need to give up going into this week. The first thing I know I need to give up is the opinion of other people and letting them control my life. It's not really what other people think. It's what you think about yourself that counts. And I think that's really, really important. You have to do exactly what's best for your life, exactly what's best for you, and not what's best for everybody else's life. So keep that in mind. So one thing just to give up is letting the opinions of others control your life. Another thing to give up this week the shame of your past failures. Your past does not equal your future. And I promise you that. No matter what has happened in the past, it doesn't and shouldn't equal or control your today and tomorrow. All that matters 
is who and what you do right now. So many people live in the past and they can't break out of it. Get rid of that thought. Get rid of that mindset and live for today. Be exactly today what you want your future to be, to project. So be it right now. Don't allow the past to control you. The third thing I'd like for you to give up, and I know that I need to give up, being indecisive about what you want. You'll never leave where you are until you decide where you would rather be. You will never leave where you are until you decide whether where you would rather be. Make a decision about what you want and then go pursue it passionately. Make that decision, then go for it. Don't drag the baggage into tomorrow into today. Let all that past stuff stay there. Another thing to get rid of is get rid of the procrastinating on the goals that matter to you. There are two primary choices in life. To accept the conditions as they are or accept the responsibility for changing them. It's up to you. The next thing to get rid of, choosing to do nothing. You don't get to choose how you're going to die or when. You can only decide on how you're going to live right now. Every day is a new chance to choose. What are you going to choose? What are you going to decide on? What are you going to rely on? Where are you putting your hope in? Another thing that I'd like to for you to consider getting rid of, running from problems that really should be fixed. Folks, stop running. Face the issues. Fix the problems. Communicate. Appreciate forgive and love the people in your life that deserve it. Allow them in that deserve it. Don't bring in, you know, my one, one bit of my father's wisdom that I didn't get much good wisdom from him. But one thing I remember him telling me that if Greg, if you run with the dogs, you're going to get the fleas. I guarantee you it's the same in your own personal life, love and welcome and embrace the people in your life that deserve it and cut away from, run away from, and push away from those folks that don't. Another couple things, and I'll be done. Then I'll kick my soapbox out of the way. Try to get rid of making excuses rather than making decisions. Most long-term failures are the outcomes of people who make excuses instead of making life changing decisions. Stop with the excuses and start with the decisions to be different. The last one, try to get rid of not appreciating the very present moment. Too often we try to accomplish something 
something big without even realizing the greatest part of life is made up of all the little things. And we miss all of that. Don't overlook the little things in life because sometimes those are the things that matter the most. I focus on raising my kids by going out and working 20 hours a day so I can have more money to buy them more toys. And you act, you can ask each of my boys right now, what was the most precious moments is when I spent time with them, not the toys that I bought for them. Those greatest moments are the moments that you spend one-on-one with people that we often overlook. All right. That's my wisdom for today. Uh, I want to welcome to the program tonight, Larry Freeland. And I tell you what, I've read both of his books. Larry was born in Ohio, up there in the the Midwest, where I was born, uh, in the Illinois side. Uh, After graduating from high school uh, at Ramey, uh, Ramey Air Force Base in Puerto Rico, he attended the University of South Florida, and in 1968, he joined the United States Army and served one tour in Vietnam with the 101st Airborne Division as an infantry officer and a CH-47 helicopter pilot. He is the recipient of the Distinguished Flying Cross with one oak leaf cluster, the, um, the Air Medal with 10 oak leaf clusters, the Bronze Star, and various other military service medals. He has a newest book that has come out that is entitled Legacy of Honor, the Patriarch. And it's about a doughboy fighting in World War I Europe. The book that I've really gravitated to, both these are excellent books, but the one that I really, really enjoyed was Chariots in the Sky, which is about a U.S. Army uh, assault helicopter pilot trying to survive his tour of duty in Vietnam. It is my privilege and honor to welcome to the program a very distinguished guest tonight, Larry Freeland. Larry, can you hear me tonight? I can. Can you hear me? Yes, and you look good. Welcome, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to It's great having you. Happy Father's Day to you also. Well, thanks. Same to you. All righty. I'll tell you what. I, uh, I've read these books and enjoyed both of them, and I highly recommend both of them uh, to our listeners tonight, especially those that, because uh, these bo- both these books are novels, are they not, Larry? They are historical fiction novels. In this, in the book, uh, Cherries in the Sky, how much of that novel is about you? I get asked that all the time. <laughs> and the main character, TJ... Yeah, I built him to represent the consummate helicopter pilot, but I drew a lot on myself. And many of the episodes in the book are uh, close to reality. I drew on experiences I had while I was there and the fellows I flew with and the company that I was in. So uh, it is fiction, but it's based on a lot of fact. And the characters are composites but the main characters are composites close to people I knew and, you know, cared about friends and stuff like that. So how about, how about the letters back uh, home to the wife? Uh, Those were, uh, I didn't, we wrote letters and we did tapes while we were, I was there for a year. Uh, Those are not verbatim letters. I created those for the book, 
but just you know drawing from uh, many of the experiences and i didn't go back and read any of the letters and we have a ton of them okay. so i created those but that was you know just the moment so to speak how about when you was doing i think dictating one at least the character was dictating one of the letters and they stopped because you was getting ready to apparently feed a line to the woman that you was writing to your wife or the the uh, the, the character's wife in the story and you said uh stop and you went off because it was like how do i explain to a person on the other side of the world what this is really about did that actually happen it did i thought it did that was real to me yeah, it's uh, how do you how do you tell people you love and close family members, you know, what you're experiencing day in and day out. And if you've had a rough day, rough day being you're gotten shot at. Uh, how do you how do you uh, talk about that? Uh, you, you want to forget about it. You're going to go out and do it again the next day. But that night uh, you just kind of want to relax and put it out of your mind if you can. And uh, so I, I made a point my whole year there of not. Uh, divulging any uh, thing that I experienced during my year that was uh, rough, so to speak, or combat related. Uh, so I was very ginger about that. You know, my, my wife knew enough to know that, you know, I was uh, seeing action. My father being a career Air Force officer, 30 years, World War II, Korea, Cold War, Cuban Missile Crisis. He knew. Uh, so, but I, I just, I just couldn't feel, uh, I didn't feel right writing about it. I put it in my, we each kept a diary. Uh, before we left, I bought two diaries, gave one to Linda and I kept one. And we agreed to write our thoughts and activities each day. And then when I'd come back at the end of the year, we'd exchange them and read them, which we did. So I would capture some of my experiences in my diary on, on selected days. Uh, there were a couple of days I didn't even want to write. It was, I just didn't want to remember that particular day. But uh, we did that so I could draw on that. Uh, to recount some of the stuff and Linda could uh, appreciate some of my days uh, while I was there. It was, it was real interesting to see what happened to me on a particular day and then look at her diary and see what she was doing on that day. And uh, those kind of episodes or those kind of comparisons were, were real interesting to me. Uh, How so. hard Larry would have been to write a personal memoir of your experiences and personally what you were going through uh, physically, emotionally, racially, uh, mentally, uh, and the, the emotions that had to be running through you with life and death situations 24-7. Uh, I chose, I gave, a, I gave a lot of thought when I decided to write this book, uh, which was back in 2018, 2019. Uh, do I do an autobiography or, you know, a fiction, I mean, a, a nonfiction and base it on my experiences? Or do I write a, a fictional uh, book and draw on a lot of experiences in the history that, where I could? And I chose to do the latter because I wanted to write a book where the reader, if they got into it, could identify with my main character, Captain uh, Taylor St. James T.J., and have that character embody the typical helicopter pilot. Uh, we were kind of a cocky bunch and we were <laughs> daredevils and we experienced a lot. And there's a lot of comradeships between the pilots and the air crews. You go through stuff like we went through and you form a lot of bonds and you, you endure a lot of uh, hardships, so to speak. 
And I wanted to pay tribute to the, the helicopter crews and pilots that uh, served in that war. It's a 12 year war and it was a helicopter war. Uh, <clears throat> Explain that, so, Larry, that it was a helicopter war because folks like me that haven't, you know, uh, seen combat, it was, I mean, the, the amount, the vast amount of helicopters was phenomenal that was used. So what do you mean by helicopter war? Well, the, the whole concept that, or strategy that was employed most of the war was going out from big bases called fire bases or, or main bases and going out into the bush, the, the badlands, and then certain troops and let them go out and do what we called search and destroy mission. Look for the VC, look for the NVA and engage them. Uh, and to get in and out like that, they required helicopters. So uh, the strategy was to airlift them in. The air, air cav came in in 1964-65. First major battle was in the Idrang Valley. We were soldiers once, remember that? Uh, and then, of course, it just expanded from there. So virtually the helicopter was the lifeline, the chariot, so to speak, that took people in and brought them out. And any veteran who served in Vietnam, particularly in the Army or the Marines, will never forget helicopters, the smell of them, uh, the JP-4, that, the wop-wop, the sounds of them. And uh, they were their lifelines when they were out in the field. We put them in, we took them out, we kept them fed. Uh, we did all kinds of things. When, the, when we were called, we went. And when they needed us, we went. So uh, you know, it was just centered to the whole thing. Without the helicopter, it wouldn't, wouldn't have been fought the way it was fought. Now, people could talk about why did we fight it that way. That's beyond, beyond my understanding. I didn't strategize the war. I was just called in to fight it part of it. So, uh, but they were, they were critical to it. And to put that in perspective, there was over 12,000 helicopters that were used in Vietnam during the 12 years. About 48% of those were destroyed during the war, almost half. Many more were shot up and some shot down and reused and repaired, but basically half of the helicopters used were, were destroyed over the 12 year period of that war. And now, you know, men were flying those, depending on what aircraft you were flying, it could be a two man crew to a five man crew. So, you know, there's a lot of men on, on each one of those uh, aircraft. Not that they died or got wounded, uh, but uh, you know, so, some certainly did, so. What kind of team, uh camaraderie did, did you have within that helicopter uh, network? Uh, I remember the, the, uh, the bar that had the helicopter rules uh, that was posted behind on the wall. And yeah. I thought those were really good rules. I think rule number one was something about, you know, you back up the person because he's going to be backing you up later. Uh, what kind of kinship did you all create? Uh, a pretty close one. Uh, you've always got characters in any outfit, and the pilots were a pretty tight bunch uh, in their units, their companies, their battalions, or if they're all working together on a major operation. I'll just speak to our unit, but it was pretty standard throughout the, throughout the aviation community with the Army, particularly in Vietnam. Uh, we had uh, our company, I was a Chinook pilot, and our company was called the Pachyderms. And I've got over here on my shelf, it's a big wooden elephant. And when you came into the company, speaking to the comradeship and all that, you would be initiated after you've been there a couple of days uh, into the pilots pilots group or the pilots club. And we had our own little club there, and uh, they would get it was it involved drinking and some other things. But uh, behind the bar was uh, all these wooden elephants carved out of uh, some kind of mahogany from Thailand, 
And when you're the new guy, you would pick one out that was on one side of the uh, shelf that didn't have a name on it, and they'd tape your name on it. And on the other side was all the elephants that had names taped of the guys in the unit. So we, when you're initiated in, you picked your elephant, they taped it, and you went through initiation. And when you were uh, done and rotating out, what they did is they took your elephant, they put a plaque on it, and then you, you presented that at your going home party or your going home uh, bash, if you, so to speak. And, uh, and you would take that home. Uh, if during uh, the year, and they put it on, on tape because during the year we lost a few, few fellows. And when you lose somebody, they would take the tape off of the elephant and put it back over here for another new guy to pick. So, uh, but that was part of our initiation. That was part of the brotherhood, if you will. Uh, just a little little tidbit there. We had our own little corner in our company. Uh, we had our own volleyball uh, court there. We played volleyball a lot when it wasn't raining. Uh, we could get movies every once in a while and show them in the club. And we had our own little pilots have a knack for bringing stuff that don't belong to them back to their company, like <laughs> picking up beer uh, pallets. Uh, we were schnook company, so we could pick up whole pallets and bring it. We occasionally get a palace steak and we'd treat everybody in our base camp to steak. And we had our own little grill out there by the club. So, uh, yeah, we had a pretty good life when we weren't uh, flying or you know, seeing action, so to speak. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that all contributed to the uh, to the guys getting together. And that was important. Uh, oh, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. So when you that? when you see movies uh, today and I don't even know if you enjoy movies about war uh, mm -hmm. and conflict. Is there any movie that you watch and you go, wow, that one is just about as real as it's going to get? What would that be? Uh, I am a movie buff, so that's a tough oh. question. Uh, and I do enjoy is the wrong word. I've, I've watched war movies over the years. Uh, seen many. Um, I have my favorites. Uh, I think uh, from for the Vietnam era, one that really jumps out is We Were Soldiers once. I just thought that pretty much nailed it on the ground and the helicopters trying to get in and out like they did in the movie. Another one that I thought was pretty realistic was um, uh, Hamburger Hill, which mm -hmm. was based on a battle. My newest book that I'm writing now has a, a, a my main character in that is in, uh, is a officer at Ground Pounder, and he's involved in that battle. He'll be involved in Ripcord, which comes later in, in, the, in that oh, the following year, actually. But that was, I thought, a pretty good movie that, you know, was close to some of the realities. But they can't get real close. I mean, the only way you ever really know is to have been there. But I think uh, those two from Vietnam did a good job. I think Steven Spielberg, with his opening 20-minute sequence in Saving Private Lion, uh, captured the essence of that. You hear stories... Uh, about veterans who were there that went to see that movie and leaving the theater in that first 20 minutes, it was so overpowering for them. When I saw it the first time with my wife, there was a couple older fellows that got up and walked out. Uh, and I heard a lot of that happen to, to some of them. So I thought that movie, the first part was very realistic. And I, I tend to talk, uh, I've been invited to different book clubs and, and, and civic groups occasionally talk about both my books and Chariot seems to get the most attention. And they said, well, what is it like if you're a helicopter pilot? You land, you go into a hot landing zone where you're taking troops in or bringing them out, and people are shooting at you. Well, what's that like? And I said, well, you know, picture this. 
think of everybody's seen Saving Private Ryan. Oh, yeah, we've seen it. So remember the first 20 minutes when all those men are getting off those landing craft and the whole place is just going to hell in a handbasket? That's a hot LZ. Just substitute the little uh, Higgins boats for Hueys going in. It's the same idea. Uh, so And the, the Hueys are sitting there hovering while the troops are getting off or trying to get off. So uh, same idea, just trying to visualize that. It could get pretty rough and pretty hairy down there. So... Was you surprised uh, at the success of your first book, Chariots in the Sky? I looked at it one night, and it was number one in a couple categories, number two in another one, and in the top 20 or so in another one. It's like, oh, my lands. You know, my book, I think, is sold 1.4 million. But you were this, – this book really did well. Is that right? It did. I've been very proud of us, surprised by yeah. it. Uh, my publisher was, uh, he wasn't as surprised as I was, but he was happy about it. <laughs> so uh, it's done very well. It, it was number one and two, and it's still hanging in there today. Yeah. It's been over two years in, in the top 10 or under. Every once in a while it tops one again, but it's in the top 10, and we're, we're going in, well, it's been about two years now since it was published. So it's, it's just a topic that I think a lot of people uh, gravitate to. And getting back to why I wrote it as a historical fiction and trying to capture the essence of a helicopter pilot uh, was that a lot of books that are written about that are done from the standpoint of a you know nonfiction and it was an individual's experiences or a group and those are great, uh, but it's about that person or those couple people. I wanted to put people in the cockpit. I wanted to make them feel the fear, feel the uh, the uh, the anger, if you will. Uh, see, see the devastation around them. Sit, sit, try and feel what it's like to be sitting there hovering. Your helicopter's doing that while guys are jumping out and bullets are popping all over the place and RPGs are flying by your window and mortar rounds are going off in the LZ and shrapnel's flying around and artillery's dropping depending on what, what area of Vietnam you might have been in and try and make them get a feel for that and uh, come out the other side going, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And I've had a lot of people tell me just that, so I'd say, you know, I feel pretty good about that. So, wow. Now, if um, is this a legacy uh, of honor? Uh, is that of the first one in a trilogy? Is my understanding that correct? Yes. I uh, when this one uh, went right after it got out, and I was told this after I got into this writing business. I was <laughs> five years ago. Anyway, so you're going to be writing, but you know, you're crazy. I wouldn't be done. And you're great at it. You're great at it. Well, well thank you. Uh, and when I came out, after it went out, it was doing well. I said, well, you got any other ideas? And I said, well, yeah, I really enjoyed writing that book. And I said, and I'm really surprised at how well it's doing. I said, yeah, I've got an idea. I'm thinking about maybe writing a story and we could turn it into a trilogy about one American family's three generations of men that fight in our wars, starting with World War I, basically to the, what they call the GWAT. And uh, he said, that sounds good. Write it up and let's talk about it, which I did. He says, we, we got it. Let's do it. We signed a contract. So I set about writing book one and uh, it's titled Legacy of Honor. And book one is uh, it's historical fiction, first person. It's loosely based on my grandfather, Grandfather Freeland, who I was oh, very no. close to growing up. He was a doughboy over there and an infantryman in the trenches. Uh, and um, he never talked about it. He shared two stories with me all the time. He was a big storyteller. And they were they were they were uh, uh, humorous, so I embedded them in my book. One, you, uh, the, the the greatest 
patrol. Remember that where a guy falls through the ground? That's that's true. That happened on one of his patrols. And uh, then the other one about the Texans. He uh, he loved Texans. Uh, but anyway, and he never talked about anything else. I I learned more from other people. Uh, but and I dedicated that book to him and the and the men that. Uh, fought in that war, about 4 million of them in the army for World War One, And it covers World War One and then first half, basically. And the second half is uh, how he transitioned back into society and what he went through. You know, he comes back and it's, you know, so it was rough on those guys, World War One. They got gas, the, the food was lousy, the water was lousy, living in the trenches, kind of like living next to a sewer when they were in the trenches. So they had a lot of health issues when they came back and they didn't get a lot of support for those. And then you had to go through the Great Depression. And then in 32, there was, it's in the book, and you're, uh, you've got the, uh, uh, the Bonus Army March on Washington for the veterans to get their benefits that were promised to them in 2019, but weren't going to be paid until 1945. Most of those fellows would have been dead. And they wanted to get their bonuses because they needed money and help from the, for the Depression. So they, they went to Washington. About 12,000 of them eventually showed up, and they camped there for a period of months trying to get Congress to move and, you know, the rest is history. And I embedded that in the book. And then there was later on in the thirties was the, the little steel strikes in the Ohio area. Uh, and I brought embedded in there because the veterans seemed to be the targets a lot of times of, of these things and bore a disproportionate share of, of what was going on in, in our society. Probably some of that is because they, they didn't like putting up with, what they didn't think was justice and they would stand up to be counted and they'd be out there uh, and leading efforts and trying to help and everything. Of course, that'd make them targets, but they were a generation and these fellows particularly said, you know, we had enough. <laughs> we want to make yeah. things better. And they were willing to do what they needed to do to try and get that done. But that's book one. Um, book two is, is titled, and I just finished it. It's in the latter stages of editing. We hope to uh, publish that this summer by my August. And it's titled The Air Warrior. And it's loosely based on uh, my father's 30-year uh, career. And, of course, the end of book one, you have uh, Sam, the protagonist's son, is Sean. He's the main character in book two. And he'll serve in uh, World War II, Korea, uh, the Cold War, and uh, the early phase of the uh, Vietnam War. And it covers a pretty broad speck of, speck of history there. And book three is uh, called The Descendants. Uh, Sean, who's in book two, the son, he has three sons and they'll be there in book three, the descendants. And I'm working on that book now. And that's loosely based on my three brothers. I did five years in the army. My middle brother was a Navy pilot for 27 and a half years, retired as a captain. And my younger brother was two years in the army and did a stint on the DMZ in Korea while I was in Vietnam. They, he came down on orders to go to Vietnam while I was there. And when I found out, I called the Pentagon and said, you have a choice. You can keep me here as an infantryman and a pilot. Or you can bring my brother over here as a grunt, and then you'll send me home because you're not going to have both of us here. Of course, they sent Bob right away to Korea and didn't send him in. And then he got out. He served in a – he was a special agent with the government for 50 – well, till he turned 50. Got out, and then 9-11 happened, and he decided to work for, for these private security companies. Did two 18-month tours in Iraq out on the FOBs as a security specialist embedded with the infantry guys. He had a lot of experience with weapons and uh, explosives and things like that. Wow. He did two 18-month tours doing that. And then he came home 
about six months and oh, I need some more. He was an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> he said, I got to go. He said, I got to try Afghanistan. So we went to Afghanistan for 13 months doing the same thing. Came back, says, I've had enough. And uh, so uh, he, all three of us saw some action through our military experiences, my father and my grandma. So we got three generations of men in my, in my family that, uh, you know, served and then, and each of us saw, saw something. So yeah. uh, I'm dedicating this, each book to my, my immediate family members and the men and women who served during that period. So, absolutely. Uh, and I'm trying to, well, all three of these books, uh, the two that I've read and I, I can see the trilogy, th- these could be movies. Uh, I'm not, say much, but I, I think uh, the trilogy could really be, I could see that being uh, a good movie script. I would I would hope so. It would be nice. Uh, you know, one thing about Chariots, which is about the helicopter, there's really not a movie yet that's been made about the helicopter aspect. All these Vietnam War movies, there haven't been that many of them, but there's always a helicopter in there somewhere, and sometimes there's a few more, but it's just an aside to the ground action. And uh, there's just a story to be told about what the helicopter crews went through because it was harrowing when it, when they were out there. Absolutely. Oh, I'm looking at the time. Why we're, we're past uh, our time for a break. Let's take our, our commercial break. On the other side of this, Larry, I wouldn't mind if you have access to that elephant, would you share that with sure. us and show it online while we take the break? Uh, and then on the other side of the break, when we get back, I uh, want to make sure we show the book covers to everybody. But I want to talk about the wall sure the first time you visited the wall the impact that wall had on me uh and the significance of that uh and talk about that a little bit and then i want to talk about i want to drill inside of your your emotions and your heart and your brain into how you handle some of the things and how you got through it so we're gonna do all of that on the other side of this commercial break 888-627-6008 you have a question or a comment Paul, Ed, and PJ will be right there at the BBS radio station and patch you right through. Hang with us. We'll be right back. From HCI Publishing that brought you the international bestsellers, A Child Called It!, and the Chicken Soup for the Soul series comes the latest book by Dr. Gregory Williams, Shattered by the Darkness. This book describes the horrific abuse that Dr. Williams suffered at the hands of his father for over 12 years and the damaging effect of keeping everything silent about that abuse for 30 years. If you're looking for that book that you can't put down, then pick up a copy of Shattered by the Darkness by Dr. Gregory Williams at all Barnes & Noble stores, Amazon, and Books A Million. Now, back to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Welcome back. I told you the sun would finally start going down. It's a beautiful sky right behind me in Houston, Texas, and we are live and uh, have a great guest tonight, Larry Freeland, and he is the author of Legacy of Honor, The Patriarch, and that is out right now, brand new book, 
and then Chariots in the Sky. Uh, both of those books I highly recommend, and I'd, I'd recommend them for people that have never possibly even thought about picking up uh, a book about the Army or Vietnam War or uh, World War One or two, because you can uh, get a lot of good truths out of this. And Larry, is there any is there any life lessons that you wanted to incorporate in here? Was there any undercurrent? between the line thoughts that you say, hey, wait, if you're ever in this, this is how to endure it, that you put inside of your characters that you wanted the readers to draw from. Well, in Chariots, there's a little bit when he's, uh, you know, he's been, he's back in his room and he's had a rough day and how he's trying to handle it. Uh, with uh, Legacy, tried a little bit of that with uh, the main character, Sam, and how he uh, dealt with things uh, through his life. I will say in the legacy series in book one, I'm trying to capture not only the war experiences, but when they go back and assimilate. So basically about half of my story in the first one, the patriarch is the war. The second half is him assimilating or trying to assimilate back into society. Uh, my, one of my arching themes for all three books in the trilogy is to give people a better appreciation, understand what men and women endure while they're serving, whether they're in the war or not, and then what they have to endure and how they handle it when they come back and some of the issues they have to deal with. If you're an individual that serves in uh, the military, you're going to have uh, some experiences. If you're in a conflict or, or in combat, you're definitely going to have some experiences that you would carry with you the rest of your life. They don't go away. They may be buried because uh, I speak for myself. I did the best I could to bury mine when I came back from Nam. It took a couple of years to kind of settle down before I uh, got more focused and began my civilian bank career. But I still occasionally have issues. Something will set it off and I just, oh, where'd that come from kind of thing. But I've been able to deal with it pretty well. And I think all veterans, men or women, particularly uh, the more they've served and the more they've seen, We'll have issues, uh, and it's and how do you deal with those issues? Uh, you just got to face them. I, we can go down that road a little bit, but uh, so that, that I'm trying to put that in my books so that whoever reads them will learn history, will identify more with what our men and women have done when they are in these wars and what they had to deal with when they were trying to assimilate back. You know, one of the things that I very few people know anything about World War One, so I think the first book gives them a pretty good idea from a historical standpoint of, of that period. I've had a lot of people that tell me that, as well as getting into the character and feeling for the character and some of the things the characters had to deal with. Uh, so uh, that's that, that's one of the things I've tried to capture there. And for book what, two, what are some of the things, in your opinion, Larry, that our country is doing right? And then possibly not doing so well when it comes to providing that transition and that much needed help during that transition for our veterans that are coming out uh, back to civilian life. Where are we missing the boat that if you had the ear of President Biden that you could whisper into right now, hey, you need to improve on this, what would that be? That, that's a tough one because my own opinion, I think everybody looks to the VA, which is important. And uh, yeah. a lot of good people are doing a lot of good stuff with the VA. But 
there's a lot of things they could be doing either better or doing that they're not doing now. Uh, and that comes from leadership uh, from the top to the middle. So I've, I've dealt with the VA for many years because I've exposed Agent Orange and I've had issues trying to get as many Vietnam veterans have, trying to get more attention directed towards some of my issues. And, and it's, it's a long struggle. I'm still doing, uh, if you can believe this, I'm still struggling with the VA trying to get a, a, a lousy 10% disability for my hearing. Now, how can a Chinook pilot with two jet engines fly three years and not have a little bit of a hearing impairment when they get out? Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty, uh, it can be pretty frustrating. So I think they're, t- the leadership needs to be a little more attuned. And I think the veteran ought to be given the benefit and not have to constantly uh, try and prove that, that, that they have this disability or that it occurred while they were there. Right. Uh, that's a tough one to address. Um, yeah, the VA <laughs> Hospital of uh, Houston is right. I'm looking at it right now. It's right across the street. And uh, they do great work there. But I hear that there are some things that you have to go through so much red tape to get things done when it shouldn't be that way for our, our veterans. We should be saying, Hey, we'll take care of you. You sure took care of us. Uh, I, I think that's the fundamental issue right there. And there are some areas that some, some spots around the country do a better job than others. And some of us don't do that good of a job. Uh, one of the complaints I hear from a lot of our current veterans from the uh, post nine 11 uh, era, the, GWAT that they were involved in all these years in Iraq and Afghanistan is their issues are so often treated with just drugs. It's constantly throwing drugs at them. I've heard them often refer to themselves as walking drugstores. I just don't think that's an answer. I know when I got out of the service, uh, when I came back in the end of 71, I was, I was at Benning with the general staff for about two years until I got out. And I still, I had a few issues going on, but I was still, a, I was a captain in the army working for the general. So if I, I dealt with it, you know, you didn't, you just, you just dealt with it. You're still in the army. But when I got out and was transitioning into the civilian life, uh, and I started a banking uh, career, and uh, for the next couple of years, it was really kind of tough because I was transitioning to the civilian, and and I was having some issues, and there wasn't a VA that I could go to that would listen, and I had a personal doctor that worked with me, and he tried some uh, medications, very mild, and you know. If I was having anxiety that would help here, or if I couldn't sleep at night, this might help. But I'm not a guy that likes to take any kind of medicine. So I did that, but I got, I weaned off that pretty quick and just said, Larry, I'm just going to have to deal with this face up. I'm not going to bury it with a bunch of drugs. So, you know, I was able to handle it and get, and get through it. But I just, I think from what I heard, and it's my own opinion, that there's probably a tendency just to throw a bunch of drugs at these people. And, and get them out of there. You bring in the next group and, and just keep them moving. Without what is your problem? What is your real issues? Let's dive into them. Let's, right. There are a lot of independent groups out there and veterans organizations that are trying to do that and are doing that across the country. And I applaud them uh, for that. And they're, they can be pretty successful. But, yeah, uh, we had Gabe and uh, Gavin on uh, that, that have a warrior in the wilderness program that deals with veterans directly and they do a great job yeah. uh and i applaud those folks uh, m- emotionally mentally ptsd uh, all of those things that we hear about did that did that get up into your attic and kick some shingles loose um in your own world uh <laughs> and you started wondering sometimes hey 
am I going to be like this for the rest of my life? Yeah, that period that uh, after I got out of the Army and I was working in Columbus, Georgia, uh, starting my banking career, uh, you know, I was a, in the Army. I was, a, I was an officer, and I'd been a captain for several years and in Vietnam, you know, my experiences – when I got out, I went, I went, to, went into banking, started with trust company. They were very good to me, but I went through an 18 month trading program and I was learning how to be, count cash, be a teller, do proof machines, do collection, do all these things that are important to learn if you're going to go into the career. But I'm sitting there going, my God, 18 months ago, I was in Vietnam and I was doing these things and I commanded 200 guys and I'm doing this. And here I am counting cash. I'm like, you know, that was that was tough. That didn't have anything to do with PTSD or anything. It was just the transition from military. Right. My pay I took a severe cut, about 50%. Because you're making money here and you're going into a training program. I was behind my, a lot of my peers who didn't end up doing any service by four or five years. And these were guys that are well into their banking career. Not that I knew them before I joined the bank. But they'd already been there three, four years and were AVPs or VPs. So uh, there, there was an adjustment there, but notwithstanding that, layered on top of that, I was dealing with uh, some of the things that I couldn't quite shake. I mean, it'd be nights I'd wake up thinking I was under rocket attack and get under my bed. There were other nights when I couldn't sleep well, so I'd come some clothes and I'd walk around my neighborhood to get tired, come back and crawl in bed. And I never, I can never recall this, but my wife uh, told me on a couple of occasions <laughs> I'd wake her up sitting up in bed, flying my helicopter, yelling at the guys in the chopper to do this or do that. And she'd wake me up and I'd be sitting there going, what, what, what did I do? And so there were some things there that I had to deal with. And uh, I worked through them in about 18, 24 months and settled down and went on to have a really good uh, banking career. I was a senior officer, senior executive for many years and retired in 2000 uh, from that. Industry. So uh, you can adjust. That would be my message. You can adjust. If at all possible, stay away from the chemicals as much as you can. I mean, it's some here, some there, but man, if you get hooked on them, it can be tough. Because like I said, I think a lot of the fellows and a lot of the ladies are, are dealing with that now. They just kind of throw them all at them. Uh, so, but anyway, that's that kind one, of that. One of the things that I think maybe it could actually be a true story, even though the fiction has uh, elements of truth and your story intertwined. But when you visited the, uh, what we consider the wall, mm -hmm. uh, that unbelievable uh, marble fixture that has what, 58 some thousand uh, names etched in it uh, in a shape of a V that you cannot go and not be impacted. The, the reflections that you have in that in the book, in the very beginning of the book, are that's really from you, correct? Mm -hmm. What kind of impact did that have on you when you looked and saw names? That many names. Well, I don't want to get emotional, <laughs> but uh, the first time I walked up and saw that, I mean, I, uh, it was emotional. And... Uh, and then knowing there were some people on there I knew. And then to add even more to this, uh, my wife's first husband, Joel Kelly, college sweethearts, they, they got married just before uh, the, in their senior year. He got drafted before he finished his senior year in college, was sent over. He was in country 28 days, his third combat mission, and was killed. And uh, his name, of course, was on that wall. 
And uh, she meets me about nine months after his death on a blind date there in Columbus, Georgia. We end up getting married and the rest is history. And you talk about courage. Here's a woman who had a college sweetheart, Mary goes, they didn't even have 30 days together after they got married and she loses him and then meets me and we get married and we're, we just celebrated our 53rd anniversary, June 13th. Wow. So, uh, but uh, that's a story in itself. And I'm thinking about writing that as a book after I finished the trilogy from her perspective about a three year period there. Cause it's really, really quite, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. It would be a, a we, we forget story. about those heroes. We oh, overlook yes. the ones that are sitting at home that she went through it twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she goes and marries a helicopter pilot and an infantry officer. There's two dangerous, the biggest, the two dang, most dangerous jobs were being an infantry guy on the ground or a helicopter. And I did both. And she's sitting there going, I said, you really want to do this? And of course, you know, love transpires everything else. So we, uh, we, we got married. We actually got married in the middle of my flight school training, a three-day pass between going from Fort Walters, Texas, to Fort Rucker, Alabama. So, the uh, the the impact of the wall. I, I'm, if I remember right, did they not have a traveling wall that went all around the country for several years yes, uh, that was impactful, but nothing like? I think probably one of the most uh, well, the the raising of the flag, at, I believe, at Iwo Jima. Uh, but those guys doing that was impactful for me. And that was hard to find. But the Vietnam Wall, uh, that memorial is something that every American should take time because it will drill into you the impact. There's, uh, been, two, there's been two memorials. Or, I've been two locations that really hit me. One's the, one's the wall. Yeah. And I've been there four or five times over the years. And the other, my wife and I went on a, a, to Normandy beaches on a, on a trip. Oh. And we spent the day on the beaches. And when I walked out uh, onto the uh, cemetery, you come up from behind these hedges, I bawled like a baby. I mean, if, if you don't get upset or cry or, or just get emotional, when you walk out and see almost 10,000 crosses open in this beautiful field, uh, which used to be an airfield right after the uh, the beach was secured. Uh, you, you're probably, you're pr- I, I just won't, I can't see any American not getting emotional to some extent. And everybody I've ever met that's been there said without, uh, without being ashamed, said, yeah, it got me. That wow. place and the wall, every time I've been to the wall, uh, there's just something about them. Now others can grab me too, because uh, you know, I've seen a lot, of, a lot of places, but those two just jump out. Yeah, uh, Yes, has to be, has to be. Uh, make sure, because we're, we're running out of time. I knew this time would just fly by, uh, that you hold up your books. I want to see the elephant first. You had, did you grab the elephant? Oh, yeah. my. I thought yes. it was a little uh, a little bad. That is what they they gave you. They, they put your name on. Yep. Yep. That's that it. is quite a keepsake. <laughs> yeah, it's been in my house uh, since I got back in my offices. Uh and uh, it was made in Thailand. Uh, so, uh, yep. The, that is uh, something beautiful. Well, they put your name on the bottom. It's upside down, but yeah. they had it taped on here. And then when uh, when uh, they gave me my, I was leaving to come home. They had a, they had put a, a little uh, plate on there, but it came off over the years. We've moved a lot. I moved more as a banker than I did in the Army. <laughs> 
somewhere in that process, uh, it fell off, and I, I don't know where it went. That's that's beautiful. And here comes the two books. Folks, write these down. Put them up to where we can see the covers. These are beautiful. Chariots in the Sky, Larry Freeland, a story about U.S. assault helicopter pilots at war in Vietnam. I highly recommend that. And this next one is the first of the trilogy that just came out. Look at the beauty of this book. Whoever designed that, Larry, they did a great job. Legacy of Honor. A World War One saga, Larry A. Freeland. Get well, these two goals. He's really good. He and his team, and they're they're part. His daughter actually does that. She's a graphics designer and all kinds of stuff. She does a very good job, Reagan. So very yeah. pleased. Fantastic, Larry. Thank you for being with us tonight. Well, thank you. And I applaud you. Thank you for being a hero. I just spoke this morning for about 40 minutes uh, on what it takes to be a hero in today's world with men. And Larry, I applaud you because you fit that uh, model of uh, heroism. And I appreciate it. Thank you for serving our country. Well, thank you, Greg. And I really enjoyed being with you this evening. Anytime you want to come back, love to eat for sure. When each of the books come back, I want to let people know all about them. And hopefully these are going to keep up on number ones uh, for a very, very long time. Thank you, Larry. Well, thank you, Greg. Appreciate it. God bless you. As we close every week, I always want to let you know that no matter what you've gone through, no matter what personal war you have endured and battling in your own life, kind of lean into the camera, if you would, right now, because I'm fixing to tell you something really important. No matter what war you've been in, no matter what you're going through, no matter what battle you're going to be facing tomorrow, there's always hope. There is always hope. Join us right here next week for another edition of Breaking the Silence live from Houston, Texas. God bless you. Happy Father's Day and have an awesome, awesome week. And don't forget to give up some of those things that have been controlling your life for far way too long. Have a great evening. God bless. Good night. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. To contact Dr. Williams, dial 832-396-6525 or email him at Shattered by the darkness at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us each Sunday night at 8 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Pacific on BBS Radio Station One for the next episode of Breaking the Silence.